Hi, and thanks for tuning in once again to AlterPod, the Alter's Gate Cycle podcast. Today's episode is number 24. This is chapter 22 of the Alter's Gate, Lady Vizina. called the remarkable contraption simply the rail, and explained it was the main method of transportation below ground. According to Han, the Sibs used it extensively to travel between their cities and its network of tunnels twisted beneath most of the continent, with special stops along the way meant for safe transportation of young Sibs. As Cora looked upon the machine the first time, she recognized parts that it developed from the carriages she knew so well in Vel, except that it had been set onto a single iron track. It was also significantly more rounded, and had a series of oblong windows on the sides that typified the sib aesthetic. There were also long tendrils, cables of some sort, twisting up and securing the rail itself to a runner beam along the top of the tunnel. The more Cora looked at it, the more it reminded her of a giant black beetle. However, once inside, she was more at ease. As it was about three times the width of even the largest carriage Cora had ever seen, there were two rows of velvet-lined red benches, worked in mahogany and brass. The walls were painted deep green and limbed in gold about the borders. Though the colors were vastly different, she was still reminded of her cozy room at the inn back in the knittings, and had a surprising pang of longing for that place of her own. The lanterns had to be dimmed, however, once the rail began, and all that lit the car was the low green glow of the phosphor lamps. The light made everyone look a bit ill to her as Cora looked around. The rail moved very fast, and for about three turns all Cora saw was the green light illuminating the dark tunnels before the rail and the ghostly faces of her friends. At last she turned to Emery, who was again compulsively tuning his guitar. "'Can it possibly go so out of tune so often?' she asked, not meaning for it to sound as harsh as it did. "'I'm,' said the bard, his eyes shooting wide. I'll stop. I'm just... This contraption is very fast, and I'm not accustomed to such odd... It's fine, Cora said, standing with a little difficulty. She regained her balance and walked to him, then took the seat beside. Jem was sleeping, and Professor was close. You just never seemed satisfied with the music. It was beautiful, you know. The song we did. Emery smiled, but it was grim. Thank you. Really, the beautiful part was you. I mean... Cora was certain he'd be blushing if the light were right. She laughed. I think I know what you mean. No, Cora. Emery reached out and took her hand gently. His fingers were cold, bony, not what she had expected. It sent a shiver through her. You are very beautiful in every way. Thank thank you, she said, taking her hand back slowly. She smiled as best she could and after a few ticks went back to sit in her chair that she'd been in, and feigned sleep. She wasn't sure what to make of the bard, that was for certain. Part of her adored him. He was funny, friendly, and a most welcome conversant most of the time. But then there were moments, like just then, that she felt as if he were... No, but that idea was silly. He couldn't be in love with her. Bards didn't take wives, didn't... But that didn't mean they couldn't appreciate and admire women, did it? At last, Cora glanced up at where Ez was, and the Sib smiled wryly at her. She could not help but beam in return. When the rail ride came to an end, 
as informed them that it was time to venture through the tunnels one last time. But the tunnels they traveled to the to upland were by no means as frightening as those they had descended that fateful night after Vel had fallen to the hands of the Order of the Oak. Cora could even appreciate the work that had gone into its construction, the smooth walls chiseled out of raw stone and honed by craftspeople skilled beyond her imagination. It was a different kind of skill than what Professor was capable of, that was for certain, a raw, ancient skill that had been used since human beings realized their own capabilities so many thousands of years before. Ez walked with them, as well as two other sibs named Tress and Phaos. For the most part, they were silent, speaking only to each other in low tones. Emery walked before Cora, his instruments packed at his back in a precise manner so that, from a distance anyway, it was almost comical. He looked like a human pack horse. Jem and Professor walked behind Cora, and both seemed somewhat relieved after the visit to the Knittings, though neither particularly pleased about visiting Aunt C, or what was to become of them once they went above again. Cora felt reassured, however, by the presence of her gift from Nesme. It was cold and heavy on her hip, but reminded her of her own talents. She had decided, in light of what she had done to free herself from the Knittings' prison, that she ought to spend more time concentrating on her own powers, whatever they might be. And shooting was always something she was good at. Although she had no idea how she'd managed to spring herself from that prison, she did know how to shoot a gun. She considered asking Jem, who was more of a hand with a gun than Cora had ever thought, for some lessons if they ever got the chance. After a walk of about three turns, the company arrived at a set of stairs that led up into darkness and nothing else. Cora held up the lantern she'd been carrying and saw that, in fact, the top of the stairs was blocked by an impenetrable stone. Before she could question, however, Ez spoke. "'This is it,' said the Sib. "'Just walk up those stairs and push the stone aside.' It should move rather easily. The mechanism is underneath, though, so you won't be able to get back in once you get out. Thank you, said Emery, and Cora could hear the relief in his voice. As intriguing and beautiful as the knittings was, it was still underground. They all hungered for the light. As exchanged glances with Jem and said, I'll be escorting you to Lady Vizina's, however, just to ensure you make the trip safely. Nesmir was adamant that I look after you all, and return only when I was certain no harm would come to you. "'Very kind and Esme,' said Professor with a nod. She straightened the brim of her hat and looked up, then took the first steps up the staircase. When she got to the very top, she lifted her hands over her head and pushed, the rock moving with a low rumble. What was revealed was not, as Cora had hoped, a bright morning or late evening. No, it was utter darkness, dotted only by a few stars encircled in swathes of clouds. It was raining slightly and cold. The air whooshed down the tunnel, making the hair on Cora's head move. "'Up we go,' said Jem, gently nudging Cora forward. She expressed her thanks to the other sibs and passed the lantern up to Professor. Step by step she walked, feeling Emery's presence behind her as well. He made a clatter with all of his instruments. Cora was wearing her wide-brimmed hat, and as she emerged she heard and felt the drops of rain on it, a percussive welcome to the fresh air and open sky. She looked around. They were in the middle of a field.' dotted with rocks and boulders. It was from one of these that they had appeared, one after the other, all blinking and breathing deeply. Last came Ez, shutting the boulder behind Hayon and looking from face to face. Well, there we are, Haya said. Reaching into Haya's shoulder pack, Haya pulled out a worn leather map, smoothing it with one hand and trying to shield the rest with Haya's hat. The rain was picking up and the wind and chill with it. Shouldn't be too much of a walk from here. Ten miles at the most. 
If you're rested enough, we can move on now and make a few of those miles before we rest. I imagine the Lady Vizina wouldn't take kindly to a group of guests arriving in the dead of night. Likely not, said Cora, shivering slightly. She squinted toward what she thought might be east and noticed trees, a grove of trees, stretching out and up toward the hills. Are those trees? she asked. Jem nodded. And that's where we're headed to. This is your forest, Cora, owned by the Vizinas for the last two centuries, and before that, part of the Queen's own. Is it safe? Cora asked, who had little experience in forests. They seemed an oddity to her, almost as constricting as a crowd of people. Safe as anything is these days, said Professor, and began walking toward the wood. The wood itself was not as terrifying as Cora had thought, at least not at first. It was not an old forest, she didn't think, in spite of Jem's description, or at least it was still well cared for. There were no roots to trip her up, no fallen logs. The trees were dense, but not so much as to block out the sky entirely. Ez whistled as they walked, and Emery stared after the sib a little more darkly than Cora would have liked. Was he really so jealous? Perhaps. She just wasn't sure what to make of Emery's friendship. But, she reasoned, they'd all been through their share of stress and strain. More than anything, she was indebted to Emery for his friendship while she was in the cell, for without it she wasn't sure she would have had any strength left in her. And he was in most ways exceedingly comforting. She simply enjoyed his company, and especially his stories. After a, a two-turn walk, Professor suggested they make camp. The Sibs had left them an impressive store of camping accoutrements, even though they couldn't provide horses. The tents were easy to put up and kept out of the damp. The ground was mossy, and in spite of her suspicions to the contrary, Cora quickly drifted off to sleep, listening to Jem rattle about the tent, and dreamed of nothing but silence and dark. A few turns later, they awoke and ate. Jem busied herself by collecting a series of edible mushrooms and fern fiddles, while Professor killed a pair of rabbits. These they roasted over the fire and sprinkled with a bit of salt they had on hand for the first meat meal Cora had had in a week. It was welcome at first, but as she continued to eat, she felt a little ill, pining for the buttery bread of the nithings more than anything else, and wishing they hadn't taken the lives of the rabbits. But it was not time to speak of it. Professor indicated that they ought to move quickly if they expected to get to Aunt C before lunchtime, and she was usually out of inspecting her fields in the afternoon. How Professor knew this particular detail, Cora had no idea, but the woman spoke with such authority that she did not question it. They had packed up their camp and had been on the road scarcely half a turn when something caught Cora's eye. It moved off to her left, a flash of red and brown against the dark, rain-blackened trunks of the trees. Did you see that? she asked Professor, who was walking with her. Professor nodded, her eyes anchored where Cora had just been looking. Aye, they've been following us since we woke up. They? whispered Cora, her hand going to her gun instinctively. Shh, said Professor. I don't want the bard to get all riled up. Just keep your eyes sharp and your wit sharper. Someone's out there. A few someones. They continued to walk, and Emery passed the time by telling the tale of Alvalo, a story that he assured was from before the Great Collision. The story was a simple one, and of a kind that Cora had heard many times. A once high standing knight of the court is somehow shunned by the king. He finds the king is a most greedy individual and ends up organizing a vast network of robber thieves, all intent on returning the king's wealth to the poor. While Alvalo is, of course, renowned and loved among the poor, he is reviled by the king, and after three years of chasing, finally Alvalo is captured and killed. But the king has been so bent on capturing the rogue knight that in the process has left his kingdom in ruin. 
Alvalo's son ends up usurping the throne and ushers in a season of growth and renewal in the kingdom. Just as Emery finished the tale, a high-pitched whistle caught everyone's attention, and then, with the rustle and shudder of a hundred branches, they were surrounded by at least twenty men, all dressed in shades of green and brown, with red scarves tied about their close-cropped hats. The order of the heart, said Cora, just as she realized that Professor and Jem had taken their guns out and had leveled them at two of the men. A short knight with stark gray eyes and straight black hair came forward, his hands up in the air. They had not drawn weapons, though they were prepared to. Each knight carried multiple knives along with long-range rifles and a bow and arrow. Peace, peace, said the man. He was shorter than Cora, but he was quite confident in his stride. There was a silver pin on his lapel, and Cora wondered if he was perhaps the captain of this particular retinue. Emery was standing, gaping, his arms wrapped around him with a look of horror on his face. Cora didn't think a corpse could look more pale. "'Let us pass,' said Professor, still keeping her gun up. Now it was aimed at the speaker. "'We've business with Lady Vizina.' "'All well and good, of course,' said the man, staring at Cora, narrowing one eye and then quirking his lip. "'Though it seems to me you have quite a curious little assembly here. I am Sir Leverley, at your services, of course.' "'Whom do I have the pleasure of meeting on this lovely spring morning?' Levelly, said Professor. "'Osric Levelly, But ain't you in the rose?' "'Robin,' said Sir Levelly, his attention now fully on Professor. "'Gods above, is it really Robin Queecrise?' Professor moved her hat and shook her streaky grey hair, then fell into something that was between a bow and a curtsy. Cora expected her to contradict the name. Surely Professor didn't have a name as quotidian as Robin Creekwise.' But she said, at your service, but you still didn't answer my question. Sir Lovely laughed and bowed in return. Jem slowly lowered her gun, and Cora, who had kept her hand on her weapon, removed it as well. I've had a change of assignment, he said. I came back from a three-year campaign with the Rose to find things rather changed in Hartley. I requested the transfer, and Her Majesty arranged for this captainship. Lovely tipped his hat at Cora and Jen, nodded to S and Emery. "'But I dare say my story is nowhere near as interesting as yours is bound to be. "'How does the rumoured-to-be-dead ex-chief of the Queen's engineers "'end up in the middle of the Queen's South Wood?' "'Queen's Wood?' asked Jem, glancing around as if someone had played a trick on her. "'This is the Vizinas.' "'Not any more,' said Sir Levely. "'Alas, the Queen and Lady Vizina have gone different ways. "'Were you off to visit the Lady, then?' "'Providing she's still there,' said Professor slowly. "'measuring levelly again. "'Cora wondered if she'd taken up her gun again. "'Something wasn't right. "'Sir Leverley crossed his hands over his chest. "'No, I'm afraid she's in our custody at the moment, "'and it just so happens that we've orders to take anyone, "'anyone, mind you, "'that comes into these woods that don't have clearance from the Queen "'to be brought to the same place.' "'He raised his eyes and looked from face to face. "'Do any of you have clearance?' Emery could feel Cora staring at him, and something else pulling at his mind. Of course he had clearance. He was a bard for bloody sake. But he didn't want to say it. He didn't want to separate himself from the rest of the group. If they knew he was a bard, they'd let him pass, likely, but keep the rest behind. Just what had happened to the world while he was away? He's got papers, said Jem, unexpectedly, throwing, thrusting her thumb at Emery. He's a bard. He can show them to you. There was no denying it, Emery thought. Not now. Even if she hadn't said anything, who other than a bard would be traipsing around the forest with five separate musical instruments anyway? Sir Leverley nodded at Emery. 
Regardless, we've got to ensure that the papers aren't false, so I'll request that you all come along with us. You can do it peacefully, or we can make you come. It's your choice. But I highly recommend the former rather than the latter. We are only working to our orders, after all. I don't think we're going to take either option, said Professor. I think you're going to let us go. The knight frowned and looked over his shoulder. His knights were poised to attack now, many with hands hovering just above their bows or guns, waiting for him to give the signal. Robin, come now. You know I'm only doing my job. There are... He glanced at Cora and widened his eyes, trying to indicate without words. Delicate matters that would be rather better left to our garrison and the quiet. Emery didn't like the way he looked at Cora, like she was chattel. They're, they're with me, said Emery. They've commissioned me to document their journey for completion upon arrival to the Lady Vizina. By the Bardic Code, a code withheld by the Queen herself, you cannot put them in harm's way. Sir Lovely was put out. He frowned, tried to say something, and then frowned again. Fecking bogs, he said at last. Not that it matters. You realize she's in custody. There'll be no fanfare when you arrive at the ranch, I fear. She's holed up in the stables with the rest. The rest? asked Professor. The knight was looking at Ez and then looked away, as if he was confused about something. In other words, you're riding through on a technicality. We will conduct you safely to the ranch, where you'll be questioned. Here is not the place for such matters. He narrowed his eyes at Cora and said, The girl rides with me. The rest of you will follow. It isn't far. But, Cora tried to protest. He's given us his word, said Professor, putting away her rifle. A few of Levely's men muttered in disagreement, and he put his hand up sharply. If any of them breaks rank, you have full permission to shoot, to wound, mind you. But I don't have to remind them that if they do, they will be charged with contempt against the crown. Levely finished with a smirk. Emery would have liked to gore Sir Levely straight through for that, but he was helpless. He exchanged glances with Jem, and then, after some rearranging, was set on a horse, along with his instruments, beside a rather foul-smelling heart's guard. His hair hung long behind him, greasy locks smacking Emery in the face every now and again as they traveled through the wood toward the ranch. He clenched his teeth and sighed. Now his only thought was on Cora, and making sure she arrived safely, if he could do anything about it. Ranch was not the right word, thought Emery, upon seeing Lady of Zena's home for the first time. It was more like a campus or a small town. The central building was long and low, and surrounded by paddocks, orchards, and gardens, neatly denoted against the green landscape. But there were outbuildings also clustered, against, uh, clustered together, including a winery, a blacksmith's, and what looked like apartments. The roads from building to building were cobbled and swept clean. Immense trees with low-hanging branches leaned over walkways and paths, flowers at every turn, and it was only the spring season. Admittedly, Emery hadn't thought there were places like this one on the continent at all. The bulk of his experience had been in the north, where it was cold and rainy, and in the insufferably hot and dry south. It seemed, however, that somewhere in the middle was almost a kind of paradise. It was neither humid nor dry, and he was finding that his duster was a bit too warm. Birds frolicked from branch to branch, eyeing the knights and their guests a little warily. Once they passed through the front gate, a huge iron filigreed masterpiece depicting interlaced birds, Emery saw the horses for the first time. They were mostly tan-colored with caramel manes, and a few of them were chocolate or white or black. At the moment, they seemed entirely uninterested in the passing of the retinue, but one or two raised their heads and flicked their ears. Seeing those horses brought a lump to his throat, 
remembering his childhood on moor, seeing the wild horses run. They dismounted, and Sir Lovely dispatched most of the other knights somewhere else, speaking too low for Emery to hear. He didn't like the man for a thousand reasons, the least of which was that he spoke to nearly everyone as if he were better than they. He imagined it came from years of bad treatment among the rows. The lesser there, the higher here. Such were the ways of some men, not learning lessons from those who teach them, but seeking out only to make others suffer. "'I'll take you, the girl, and the bard,' said Lovely to Professor. "'The other two will stay out here, and wait. It isn't a scene for their sort.' Emery wasn't sure if Lovely had figured out Ez's particular leanings. From the distance, Hale looked like a fifteen-year-old boy a little late into puberty, dressed in trousers as Hale was, with a brown scarf round Hale's neck to hide the tattoos. Next to Jem, they did indeed look a pair. Exchanging glances, Jem and her sib indicated that it was all right for the others to continue on, though Ez frowned deeply, suspicious. Emery wasn't sure what the sib was capable of, or why in the world Hale wanted to be along on a trip like this to begin with, but it wasn't his place to question. Nesme had made it clear that Ez was meant to be upland for the time being, and Hale was, after all, supposed to see the group to safety to Lady Vizina. They were presumably where she was, but not, Emery didn't think, in any way safe. I wonder if that means I'll have to put up with Han for another few days, he lamented to himself. Something from somewhere within nearly answered him, and he shuddered, choking back nausea. Not again. Did you say something, Emery? asked Cora, taking his arm, though he hadn't offered it. Her fingers felt hard against his jacket and skin, and he wondered if they were cold, too. She didn't seem afraid, but she rarely did. No, I don't think. I was just— He tried and failed, cursed himself inwardly and continued— clearing my throat. "'This way,' said Levely, taking the two other knights with him. They headed toward the stables. Professor was gnawing on her lip hard enough that Emery thought she might break through, but he knew that she was thinking. Lady Vizina holed up in a stable? It seemed a sin beyond measure. Even a woman who was fairly taken in a scuffle ought not be treated in such a way, especially one of her stature. But perhaps that was the thing. Perhaps Malus wanted to make a statement.' They entered the stables and could hear low voices, accompanying the sound of so many horses in one place. There was, it appeared, a small room within the stable. This had, he hoped, at least some heat, and perhaps running water, in order to afford the Lady Vizina some of the amenities she certainly deserved. From the window of the room, Emery caught the glimpse of the side of the woman's face, deep wrinkles and lots of steel-gray hair. "'She's within,' said Levely. There were an additional two knights guarding the door, which was set with three different brass latches and a turning mechanism of such ornate design it looked like something more akin to one of Professor's inventions. Levely reached into his shirt and pulled out a small disc, which he inserted into the mechanism. The gears moved, one linking to the other, and then the door shuddered slightly. "'Take your time,' said the knight. "'I'm sending word to the oak, and I expect they'll be picking you up in a few days' time to take you to the Queen. She—' he said, indicating Cora with a nod, needs to get back to the other girls. "'But I'm not,' Cora argued. "'Your tattoo, darling,' replied Sir Osric levelly. "'I saw it when you went to adjust your hat. You might not look as prim as some of the rest, but you're one of them. Melis is waiting for you, and trust me, her company is far better than this rabble you're with.' He paused, smiling at Cora's shocked face. "'And considering who you're with and who you've come here to visit,' I'll warrant you that I warrant that you're Cora Gray, the missing one of the two sisters from Vell. Your disappearance has been something of a sensation in the headlines. I have no idea how you got this far, but there it is. 
There's a handsome reward for your return, and I'll happily put it to myself and my knights. Judging from the look on your face, I imagine I guess correctly. Professor bared her teeth. How dare you presume? How dare you, Robin, said the knight. I'm doing you a favour. You can talk to Lady Vizina, but you are all going back to Hartley if I have to drag you there myself. Now, if you please, I need you all to surrender your weapons, of course. You c we can't have you walking around in broad daylight with such dangerous items, now could we? Cora tried to argue, and Emery swallowed down a whimper. He didn't carry any weapons, at least, none that Levely would know about. I'll help you, came a voice. No, not that. Emery felt the voice stir inside him again, like a current beneath a still pond. It pulled at his consciousness, lulling him. You get me out of this, but you need to listen to me when the time comes. I can help you protect them. I can help you save her. They'll want her, of course. Levely's as crooked as an old oak branch, you know. Emery willed the voice away, but he could feel it at his forehead, prickling with sweat. Damn the timing. Professor said nothing, but angry, angrily removed her shotgun and handed it to a nearby knight. She indicated that Cora was to do the same. Emery couldn't mistake the look of pain on her face as she gave up her beautiful pistol, her fingers lingering on it just a moment before the greedy knight swiped it from her. The door will be locked, of course, continued Leverly, for your protection, but if any of my knights suspect you're trying to escape, they have orders to shoot first. He pointed at Emery. What? Emery said, horrified. Trying to escape, but, Cora tried, you're being locked up. Can't have you running away, now can we? And our friends, the, the others, asked Emery, though he didn't care much. He said it hoping that Cora might find him thoughtful. They'll be seen to said Levely. Cora was too shocked to put together the pieces. The door to the stable room closed abruptly, and there she was standing, facing her Aunt C, with Professor before her and Emery so close that she could feel him breathing down her neck. The room was more of a glorified closet, and there were a few barrels to sit on, and some pegs on the walls, but that was it. It was on one of these barrels that Aunt C sat, swathed in a long velvet robe, her long hair down and curling about her angular shoulders. Even sitting down, she was impressive, and had to be close to a foot taller than Cora should she stand up. Her features were sharp, her cheekbones high, and her nose almost hooked. Certainly not the belle of the family, thought Cora, but neither had she been. Cora's grandmother Lila had been that, looking much as her mother and Denna had, with milk-white skin and ringlets of gold. Aunt C. had a pair of spectacles balanced on the tip of her nose, and was doing some elaborate lace work when the group was shoved in. She looked mildly surprised, but her eyebrows went up when she saw Cora, as if in dim recognition. Cora Lee Gray, she said, as if she'd expected to say those very words since she walked in. Welcome to my little hole in the stable. I regret it's so uncomfortable, but they had everything removed since they put me in here. Even my stable master enjoyed a more comfortable place to put his bottom. She almost grinned. Aunt Cora started feeling her stomach twist. She wanted to start crying, but found the tears elusive. I'm so sorry, but we we didn't know what's happened. The hills have broken loose, Aunt C replied, tossing her hands up in the air, the string of yarn still attached, putting Cora to a mind of a spider weaving her own web. All five of them, I think. Professor went to Aunt C, and they took each other's hands, smiling sadly like old friends. "'What happened?' asked Professor. "'I wrote an exceptionally nasty letter to the Queen,' said Aunt C. 
and my cousin did not take kindly to the words therein. I informed her that her decisions to ransack the territories and solve the order of the asp were so foolish that even the jester Pog would have made a better choice had he been given the opportunity. So she sent the heart here, to me, to reclaim the orchards in the house. She said this airily, casually, ending in a little shrug. Meanwhile, I'm catching up on some crochet. But how can you stand for it? asked Professor. Surely she can't just come in here and take everything without reason? Oh, she has reasons, said Aunt C. You see, I held a gala event here two months ago, in which the guests of honour were a few of my close friends in the Order of the Asp, namely Sir Gawain of Fenley and Sir Sally Din. Due to the proximity and the timing of my letter, I am to be convicted of treason. Simple, but when you put it that way, I suppose. Cora was trembling. She hadn't expected a warm family welcome. But Lady Vizina had always been distant due to a long-standing feud between her and her Cora's father, Alistair. Cora wasn't entirely sure what it had been about, but it certainly had involved the marriage arrangement with her mother Estelle, a Vizina by birth. But either way, looking at Aunt C did nothing to comfort her. She seemed another cold woman, and Cora had enough of the cold. They're going to take me back to Queensland, said Cora quietly, but surprisingly all eyes turned to her. She licked her lips and stood a little straighter. But at least then I'll be with Denna, and you all won't be in so much danger. Speak for yourself, said Professor with a grunt. What other choice do we have? Cora asked. The Order of the Oak has spread their lies far enough to disband an entire Order of Knights. I don't want to think of what they could do to me. Lady Vizina regarded Cora calmly moving her fingers back and forth along the thread between her knuckles. "'There's no need for talk like that,' she said at last. "'Hope may be bleak, but there is hope yet. The Queen has left many enemies in her wake, you know, not the least of whom is me.' "'But how will we ever get out of here?' asked Cora, and again everyone looked at her, especially Professor and Emery. Emery turned a little red. "'Don't look at me like that,' she said, shaking her head and backing up against the wall, as far from the locking mechanism as possible." Professor was chewing on her lip. You did it before, Cora. You could do it again. Even if I could open the door, which I can't, mind you, what good would it do with those knights standing guard? She whispered harshly. They've got guns, if you remember. And we've got empty pockets and a crochet hook. There are other ways, Professor said, looking at Cora, then to Aunt C. She smiled a little sheepishly, then said, We think she might be a summoner. Aunt C's eyes widened, and Cora let out a strangled little noise. What? Will you stop declaring my current state to the rest of the world before informing me? It's it's a little complicated, said Professor, looking at Emery for backup, but the bard shook his head emphatically. She rolled her eyes at him and spoke to Cora. Summoners. They're people. They, they were people. Before the Great Collision, who were able to, well, channel things. Spirits, entities, sometimes the very power of the gods to do... Unusual, superhuman feats, like, you know, opening a 20-ton lock mechanism. She wanted to strike someone or something, but an act of violence seemed like the last thing she ought to do on a day like today when, above all, she needed friends. Cora never heard of this nonsense and wished for the life of her that she didn't feel so excluded from everything. Cora expected at least something from Aunt C, a laugh, a chuckle, but she only set her lips and frowned, very deeply, putting her crochet aside altogether. Then she needs to be kept from the queen at all costs, said Aunt C. Her eyes went to the bard. You're the bard. What do you think? What do your histories say? 
The barge shifted from one foot to the other, and Cora wondered what he must be thinking, stuck in such close quarters with three other women, one on the very verge of hysterics. He looked uncomfortable, to say the least, and she felt she had much to do with it. It was always that way, it seemed. She was so often the source of other people's discomfiture. So she took a breath to gather herself and put her hands over his. Emery spent the next turn detailing the history of the summoner, as far as he knew it, in the writings of Adelard the Crimson, from a text he'd once read during his studies. As strictly old religion, the text was considered by far apocryphal, but there were still a few sects around today that believed in the tenets set forth. The basics, he explained, revolved around the concept of three types of magic users, seers, speakers, and summoners. Seers were prophets, those who could see the past and the future with a set of God's blessed inner eyes. Speakers were the sort he knew most about, as, as it was reiterated to him, theirs was the tradition from which the bards of Moor were descended. Their magic was through song. Summoners as a third, but not final, as there were a few other branches in the magical community at the time, used not song or sight, but literally the power and presence of the divine, holy and unholy, to channel their magic powers. They could speak to the spirits of the waters and move them. They could command the spirits of the trees and grow them. It was, by all accounts, a most rare and special gift. Some, even, were able to communicate to God specifically. Which, of course, sent to him to worry a tremendous amount about himself. Whatever it was that had visited him in the nithings had been pulling at his mind as of late. He seemed to have absorbed it somehow. Though he wasn't yet convinced it was anything more than his own tired mind playing tricks on him. And yet, yet, could he be the summoner then? Or a speaker, at least? He couldn't deny that the musicality of the whole figment situation seemed first and foremost, but... So you think she was able to communicate with something or someone in the nithings in her tired state and therefore summon the ability to open them? Asked Nancy, all seriousness. That's the short of it, said Professor. They had been talking very quietly so as not to awaken suspicion. Aunt C was intrigued, but perhaps, Emery thought, not convinced. She didn't strike him as a woman prone to flights of fancy, that was for certain. She turned to Cora. But you have no idea how you did it. None, she said. Not a lick. She blushed slightly at the coarse language and tried again. Not a bit, I mean. Cora had let go of his hand halfway through the explanation, but Emery could still feel it there, the impression of her skin on his. He had hardly been able to speak until he'd, she'd egged him on, and now he felt spent, exhausted. Well, it seems to me we've got options, said Professor, peering out the window, but not seeing anything. She shook her head and looked at the group assembled. We'll see what Cora can or can't do. But we can't count on Geminez. No, I imagine they're planning and plotting just as we are. Of course they're plotting and planning, thought Emery. They were both in love with Cora, too. As difficult as the present situation was, he was glad to be on the side of the stables, as it were. They spoke in low voices, but it was getting very late. Cora was exhausted and kept rubbing her eyes under her specks, then swabbing the specks down again with the edge of her shirt. When she described the injustice of no place to sit or sleep, Professor suggested that she use Emery. Emery cast a shocked look at Professor, but the little woman seemed unaffected by the implications of such a gesture. Aunt C had already nodded off to sleep, her head on the side of the wall. Cora folded up before Emery and put her head on his shoulder. She was warm, and her hair smelled like hay. She said nothing but simply drifted off to sleep. Emery feigned sleep until he was certain Professor was sleeping. All right, he thought. You were right. I need you now.
Alderpod is written, produced, and performed by Natanya Barron under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 United States license. Thanks so much for listening. While the Alders Gate isn't necessarily strictly fantasy, I think this chapter, um, the most fun for me was having my mini journey of the uh, the group on the rail and then up through the the rock door and setting up camp and eating things off the land. I think that anyone who started off with Lord of the Rings is always fascinated by journey sections. So that was my little indulgence there. Um, but now we are at Lady Vizina's house. Finally, we have met Aunt C. And uh, moving into the final chapters here, the next chapter is actually uh, an Emery, or starts out as an Emery chapter and takes off exactly where this one has stopped. So um, I hope to get that one to you as soon as possible. I think um, we're winding up for some really fun stuff. So that's actually all that I have. Thanks again for listening. Take care.